Let us not be ashamed to speak what we shame not to think. Michel de Montaigne In a realm abound with fragility and fabrication, truth is forced underground. We must, as sentinels do, provide sanctuary to the marketplace of ideas. And so, let us prepare to proclaim boldly and contend forthrightly before the court. This is Candor and Counter. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Candor and Counter. I'm Sean. I'm David. And I'm Chris. So glad you guys are back with us this week. It's Friday night again. Friday night. One of my favorite, well I guess it's every other week now so it can't always be my favorite weekday, but... <laughs> Nice to come out and hang and talk, though. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we always end up talking, and then we're like, hey, we need to do some work, even though we enjoy doing this, but we just get caught up and stuff. Yeah. It's been fun catching up. You guys won't know this, but we've been recording for, what, 50 minutes? Yeah, an hour. Yeah, we're over an hour now. We we were prepared to start recording an hour ago. (laughs) The mics have been running, and we're just rambling. We're just going off. About nothing. But now we need to do a little bit of something. up. But anyway, we spent the week just pouring over some information about absolute truth and coming back today to talk about what we found out and how we feel about it. And so last week, if you guys listened, which I recommend you do, last week we ended up in sort of a... I don't know if I'd call it a limbo, but like in, well, I don't know if I'd say inconclusive either. For me, I, I wasn't sure where I was going to go, but I don't know how you guys felt. I, I think not knowing enough is how I, how I felt like that. That's the best way I can describe it. Cause I, I was really curious to see if any, any philosophers I don't even know what you would call them. Thinkers? Yeah. Had a thought similar. I did a lot of delving into that and see. It's a little hard, I guess, without a specific term to like call it. Yeah. It couldn't be like religious talks Mm -hmm. and just see where that led me. Had to look for very specific things and I usually didn't end up with anything that I was looking for. Yeah, uh, I think truth. I found a total of four, maybe four things I could have shared that helped solidify a point of view, I guess, for lack of a better term. In comparison to your theory, in the talk by Patricia Churchland, there's an evolution there presented about how the care for self can I guess evolve into care for kin and then care for kin can grow into care for a little more distant but still genetically related so it's maintenance of the gene pool um, and how those 
ethics and morals can develop around that society for mutual benefit. And I think that although that's very specifically laid out, I think that sort of plays to what you were saying about communities and, yeah. and species overall. It hasn't been that long since humans were in a community who is almost solely genetically related. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, yeah, we've been compared to the rest of the earth. We've been on the earth a blink of an eye. Right. Right. I'd, it's just our separation time wise from when we were villagers who were pretty much all related in some way. This isn't my perspective. I'm just saying I can understand how that yeah. comes to reflect in our behaviors and the way that we view behaviors and morals and how we view what is right and wrong because that was all from that perspective formed at a different time than where we live now. Like you wouldn't expect us to have developed if it, if yours is sort of an, I hesitated to use this word last week too, because I wasn't sure that it was what you meant that sort of evolutionary perspective or survival perspective of the group. But if you're looking at it through that lens, a lot of the moral questions that you would want answered today in this society, that's what I was getting at. Maybe not totally reflected in the values that were developed under that sort of growth period, that village or tribal kinship. That's why you wouldn't find the answers you're looking for. Right. Is what I'm saying. And that's understandable. One of the, so this week while I was looking for lack of a better term for answers, one of the things I tried to stay away from was evolutionary stuff. Mm -hmm. How come? Cause isn't that like, because a law of nature does not evolve. Because if it evolves and changes, it can't be absolute. Right. Yeah, and that's the point. You're looking at something that, that is there. As a constant. Yeah, from the start almost. Right. And I don't... I mean, I guess they could evolve according to the law. That's what I was going to like, say. You know, I don't right. like that the goes way back to the argument from they last phrased it in the video because they made it seem like we evolved... And this happened instead of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of this, we evolved in this way. Yeah, I heard that breakdown. It was a, actually a Christian video, an argument against subjectivity, but it was, it was basically formulated in a way where they said an absolute isn't a descriptive of something that happened or is happening. If that's not, that's an objective or a subjective perspective. A an absolute would be outside of the bounds, outside of the bounds of control. Of, it exists and and it would be prescriptive, meaning it it can determine outside of belief systems. It doesn't matter. It still exists separate from. Right, right. 
that but that was definitely one of the things that when I watched the video, I was like, no, the, the way you're saying it, you're making it seem uh, like I didn't put that together to these other people that they're they're that this is a result of evolution when it's not evolution is, is a result of this. It's sort of like if you were to view. If it were an analogy and you were to say physical genetic evolution, if you're calling it absolute, would be the wrong statement. Whereas if you called the laws under which they operate would be the absolute. It would be the, it's calling the ethics of morality and, or, or the putting morality and evolution together doesn't leave that morality right, separate right. enough to say it's absolute. Because when you connect them enough, eventually you're just, it's just, they move together. If morality moves, then it's subjective, so it can't be a... a so do you feel, do you still feel like it's absolute? Yeah. And of course I had, once I watched a video, it, it was very obvious to me that uh, Patricia Churchland. Or doctor, is it, is she a doctor? I think so. I think you're right. And this was the morality in the mammalian brain. Right. Was that, was that the video with, she talked about this experiment done on monkeys with like wire mothers and then the soft mothers. Or is that a totally? The what mothers? There was a constructed body of a, a monkey mother that dispensed food. And then there was another one, which was also constructed of wire, but it had like fur and like a face. And it, the wire one looked scary. And then the other one was approachable and soft yeah, and yeah. cuddly. And when the scientist introduced like this scary contraption robot thing into the area with the monkey and the two mothers, it fleed to the one that didn't give it any sustenance, but was more motherly. That was one of the most interesting parts of it for me. So it, it was another one of those like rat experiment things. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I guess that's why we do it to see like in our right. base form, what would yeah, happen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't without you, all this yeah, complex you, neural activity happening in our heads where we're discussing philosophy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, there are boundaries, I think to draw around, uh, I mean, I find them totally fascinating and in some ways applicable. So that's not a knock, but there are boundaries you don't, and we don't always know where those boundaries are because we yeah. don't really, we can just flat out say we don't truly understand the human brain or the animal brain, but we understand that there are similarities and that there are, there are connections. There. Yeah. You can draw lines from one to the other. And often. we don't always know how strong those, those lines are. Exactly. Yeah. But it is, it is super fascinating to see. When it comes to morals, I, I don't. I, I wanted to note something here. I do think I stated this last time. I do think the question is intended to talk about morals. There are legitimate questions out there whether absolute truth, outside of just moral truth, mm-hmm. does exist. And we took that as, or at least I did, took it as sort of a for granted that. Obviously, empirical truth does exist. 
And it turns out really that's a whole philosophical question that <laughs> I didn't go down that road because with the material we already had right. to look through. Uh, and But you sort of mentioned it at the beginning. You were like, David and I. We hit a, he said, do you know? And we're like, yeah. Yeah, we just zoned in and we're <laughs> like, this is it. And we have absolute empirical truth outside of that. And then. John was like, do you? <laughs> what? what? Yeah, I don't yeah. remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, because you said something you said, like. how do you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you made an example, that, yeah. and, and I can't remember what the example was, but it was basically questioning reality totally. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah and I ran into, I didn't really research it, but in my head I ran into that a lot too, like akin to the simulation argument, whether it is or isn't doesn't change anything. I think we should search for it, but it's not make or break. I don't think Right, like you're still experiencing the same <laughs> yeah, thing that you were yeah, experiencing exactly. before. Yeah. This is off topic, but it, and I, you know, sometimes I don't know how much of this podcast is ruminating, how much of it is, philosophy how much of it is like brothers just sharing <laughs> it I, I try not to give it too much thought because it is what it is and so we never really get too personal because we sort of existentialize everything yeah. <laughs> we go That's so true. macro view that we don't ever get real personal but anyway i used to have these sort of existential i don't know what you call them moment concerns you know, and I've been I've been going to counseling for a while, and I've dealt with a lot of these, and a lot of them had to do with like the purpose of life. You know what I mean? The purpose of reality. Now that we can visualize the fact that it's all your human brain wraps around the finality and the what is the, the, the term for how small Feeling we are? Feeling how small you are. What, what, uh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. In the infiniteness of what we know now, in the sort of automaton relationship we have with our brains and our hormones and our, it all to me felt like this existential crisis. And I felt like I was in a thinking brain in a, in a reactive body. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Like I know exactly the feeling. Yeah. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know how much of this relates to the podcast, probably none, but that whenever I think of the simulation argument and like what it would be to recognize that you're in it, that's, it, yeah, it mean, brings like, me there. I, before you just said that, I, I wanted to say that feeling almost feels like you're, controlling yourself like a game and you feel that yeah you become like you feel like you're playing aware. a first person you yeah. become hyper aware. that's a very dumbed down way to say it but you become hyper aware that what you're experiencing is a, a yeah a you're program. you're this yeah and this yeah. is something that happens yeah. yeah and realizing that you're full of <laughs> chemical reactions and electrical signals to me, that created a, a, an internal mental crisis because mm -hmm. you want to be present and live and feel things. 
But doing that while knowing that some of that is not under your control consciously. Yeah. yeah. You have it is a is a yeah. pivotal moment for you to try to deal with when you yeah. have that dissociativeness from mm. your own body. Yeah. yeah. This reminds me of the Jordan Peterson talk with Joe Rogan when he was talking about when you're in the zone and you, you really feel like you're in the right place at the right time doing what you're supposed to be doing, walking the line between chaos and order. And that's where the meaning is, he says. Yeah. And because you get the stability of order. Exactly. That's like at the polar opposite of this first person existentialism we were talking about. I feel like, oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like right. this is on the total other end where you're in the moment doing what you know you got to do and it's right and you feel it. Yeah. And you can be, you, like you said, you can be mired in order, stuck, never yeah, moving, yeah. never progressing anywhere. But like you have to have that sort of toe or foot in chaos. Yeah. It's something like, you know, push you along a little I bit. mean without being too what what's that term um engrossed no where something breaks the was it the fourth wall meta that where people in TV talk yeah, to yeah, the yeah, listener yeah, yeah. that's meta yeah meta m a t a yeah so not to be too meta but that's sort of what this podcast is for us like it's a little bit of that like you're you stretch that foot Oh, out yeah. into chaos, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? See, I, 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 had, I, yeah, I thought the same. Like thing. we're all comfortable going to work and hanging out with our friends and all of that thing, but like sitting in front of a mic and sharing something that m may not work. Yeah, really testing. You know, is, a, is 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 a risk. Talking about things that we don't understand, <laughs> all yeah. always is a risk. Yeah. We got away here, but the point is, it actually. I don't think we're that too far. No, off. we're not far off. I just meant we may not be specifically talking about a moral absolute at yeah. this moment. That train led us here. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I like where where we're, we are right now. So that wasn't a a dig. I hate that word. <laughs> you didn't use it in the <laughs> same context. I know it's a totally different word. I mean, totally different context. Anyway, but that wasn't a, a dig at where we are. But it was just a. Observation. Yeah, an yeah. observation. When you said that about walking the line between chaos and order, Jordan Peterson talks about that quite a bit and a lot of his talks right. and all that stuff. And I had heard it a couple of years ago. And it was one of the things that changed how I think. Really? Yeah, like it, I, it really was. Because I didn't understand. You had some, a little bit of thought over chaos and order before, I guess you heard that. That was sort of the first thing I ever heard by him was, yeah, and I, I didn't have any idea about chaos and order in reality. I mean, I'd heard the terms before, but never really had it explained. And it changed the way that I thought about what I do because I started to find solace. Maybe that's not the right word. I, yeah, I started to find comfort in, order in my life mm -hmm. a, a few years ago and things started to realign. And as they came into order, I thought this is what it's supposed to be like 
this is how I fix things. It's like some, right, something clicked that just. And that, but that's what I thought. But in reality, that wasn't true. What I had to do, I did have to order them first. I did have to put the things that were not in order in order. But then after I did that, I was still, I hate the word unhappy because it doesn't explain anything. Mm -hmm. So I was trying not to use that here, but I was still anxious and I couldn't figure out why I had ordered everything. I'd like put everything back the way it was supposed to be. And my life was a smooth machine, but like I still was anxious and mm -hmm. I was like, what is going on? And counseling was a big part of it, but realizing that I needed to dip my toes into chaos was part of it too. That's where I was going with that. It's like realizing that it wasn't just order. And you talked about Taoism a little bit in the past. And this relates a lot to it. It solidified yeah. a lot of my beliefs with it. Actually, you said it was pretty pivotal to how you I don't know how you would explain it how you process the world the the video I mean and it was for me too the 10 minute clip really spoke to me and I had seen that interview when it came out years ago but I didn't realize the weight of that something I realized since we started recording this I have every time I see something I'm looking deeper yeah. Than I once did. Just generally with anything? Not this is what's on the order at Burger King kind of thing, but like whenever I see something philosophical or maybe even scientific, I think about what deeper connection it could have or effect it could have. Yeah, you start drawing this web. Mm -hmm. As you start to formulate comprehensive contextual picture of the universe rather than being on autopilot maybe because in the world that we live in we don't have to conscribe to something right like you can go your entire life and not conscribe not accept a full set of ideas from anywhere you know total yeah total freedom and so Without that pressure, there is no pressure. We don't live in small social groups with high social pressures to fully accept things like we did before, years ago, or even 50 years ago, yeah. even. Yeah, we live amongst the world. And the interconnectedness yeah, of it is infinitely complicated. So nobody expects as much of a complete picture out of every right. person. Most right? people have a better general understanding of people. <laughs> and like I said, there's no in group. Well, I mean, there is in group, but you can be not in group. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't have to have a conformative idea and be on the same page as everybody else around us. So without that pressure, some pressure sometimes is a positive thing. But it, it can also be a negative thing because it can pressure you to believe the wrong things. Pressure to conform even though it may not be correct. 
but no pressure means that you can coast. And we've come to a point where we're forcing ourselves to reconnect all our ideas and draw all those lines. And so when you go through the world and you start seeing these things, you start processing. I, I had an immature, I don't know, immature may, sounds like a negative word. I meant immature in the sense of young developed, yeah. but I use the words continu- continuity of thought, but it doesn't matter what you call it. Idea coherence, like it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but like as long as it all stitches together and there aren't contradictions within your understanding or beliefs right. or design of the world, when you're going through the world, you're able to analyze your own self and your own beliefs and your own system. Whereas maybe before I was definitely this way, I did a cursory understanding of things where when it gets more developed and you're forced to articulate it, then it becomes a necessity I mean, to look yeah, at the yeah, world that especially way. Especially over this last you know, week. It was a like, long way of saying that. <laughs> it is a necessity that you look at the world that way because of what we do and how we are forced to examine it now. That's true. If you want me to truncate that entire paragraph. <laughs> but I uh, mean, that's kind of what this last week forced me to do, right? Because it was this idea that I had just kind of formulated. I never really, I, I never solidified it. Like, it wasn't polished. It wasn't, right. yeah. There were bricks everywhere, but no yeah, house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I realized that there were a lot of things that work, but there were a couple of things, a couple of things that I had to either work with or against in my head and come to the conclusion of like to be consistent with myself or with this belief to make sense, to be coherent. Can you point out anything that you feel like you needed to deal with? Yeah, the one thing that I named last week was uh, the reason I mentioned it is because it stuck out so much to me. The fact that even with this morality tied to a natural law, it's still subjective to one species, her species. So, like how you brought up getting rid of animals on the planet we see is or sorry keeping animals on the planet conservancy yeah is a good thing and we all agree it's a good thing how I, i had mentioned that like laws of morality don't govern that kind of thing or i i didn't say that we we came to a general conclusion because we didn't find any laws or any moral laws from any source that do but we do it anyway. And in my head, because if, if a moral law or a moral natural law exists, then it, do, it isn't just applied to us. It's applied to everyone. Moral laws aren't attached to humans at that point. It means they're attached to every species. So that I- means you couldn't go getting rid of species meaning 
conservation would be built into the system. Right. Because if you don't protect other species, other species don't protect you, you die out. Which, I mean, I would, I guess you could say conservation is a form of homeostasis. Finding equilibrium, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that is accurate. I was just, it seems similar to me. It's just when I had said it before, I, I had Al- noted that. Almost like the predator won't out. Eat all of the prey. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we do on occasion. I'm just saying. But like the fact as that a we're, guiding- we're omnivores, not herbivores. Mm-hmm. We can't get rid of every other animal. Yeah, it's not like it does away with our food pool. But what I, what I was saying was last week I had said that it didn't matter. Like it, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I, there I'm was no effect. Yeah. Also, last week I had I don't remember what my response was actually, but I do remember us mentioning the Bible not speaking biblically to conservation. Yeah, to uh, animal conservation or whatever conservation. Although it doesn't specifically say, like, you know, we should specifically work toward conservation per se. It does, when I think about it more, it does speak to stewardship is what we call it, which is taking care of what God has given you, Hmm. which I think is applicable. You know what I mean? But stewardship or taking care of God's blessings and God's creation are biblical. They are in the Bible, but, and I didn't want to go too deep into it because it wasn't super important, but I think that those are fair to apply. I would say they aren't necessarily moral commandments. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. But expectations, the expectations are there and it speaks to the issue. Or issue, quote unquote. So, Sean, you felt undecided. Yeah, I'm feeling more conclusive this week. I keep thinking back to that, those Jordan Peterson videos, man. Uh, And I'm still trying to figure out a little bit how that balance he he was talking about between chaos and order and how that's the antidote to moral relativism. I mean, I see the, the relation, but I don't see how it just, I don't see how it trans solves the problem, but I, I can feel where he's getting at, but I don't know what I'm missing. Something else has to be teased out of there. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you find yourself right now? Like, so I find myself, trying to because last week you felt like leaning towards subjectivity yeah am i wrong you no, you're not you're not i was totally on on that boat i thought it was yeah all subjective about the ethics or culture social it's just a learned yeah system. just cultivated experiences that mm-hmm. that gave you your morality and opinions and made you who you are but they're that's still true i think obviously it doesn't disappear yeah it's not exclusive though to try to further explain my understanding 
finding that balance between chaos and order is where meaning is. And like, I see how he's applying it to moral relativism and that is true for everyone and everyone's quote unquote meaning. I don't even like to call it meaning, by the way, that feels, I guess it's apt, but it feels like a really big thing to say. I think meaning, okay, I, this could be a whole, <laughs> but I, to be curt, I think that meaning is a sense, right? When you have a sense of meaning, when you feel meaning, it's not like you're not nailing something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. On a signpost and saying, this is my meaning. Do okay. you get what I'm going? I do. I do. I do. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that and this that's true for everyone and that's how i see it counter moral relativism but how is that part of morality though i was actually going to ask you because i don't remember this connection that was made i don't know if i saw this video but i was trying to connect those dots while you were talking and i'm not really sure how, how? they're related like i don't well like, I'm still trying to figure out as well. Maybe. Morality and what? Hmm? And meaning. Morality and meaning. How is morality connected to to your meaning? If you're doing what's right, I guess you might be. If you're doing what's right for you, are you doing what's moral? But then it's going to be different for everyone still, right? Their meaning. Because it's based off of your if you're saying what's right for your meaning, your sense of meaning, yeah, then that would be your moral truth. Yeah, exactly. But then you're saying it could still be I subjective guess, though, because I guess it is subjective, but everyone has their own moral truth. Maybe. I don't know, but hold on. There was all, I also connected what he said to another philosopher who I cannot remember the name of. And I, I'm not sure if this would be directly connected, but I just saw some uh, connections to what Jordan was saying in in this guy's philosophy. Kant. Yeah. Yeah, Kant. And, and uh, uh, rational absolutism. Have, yeah, are you any familiar we have, with that? No, I'm not familiar with that. We've came across Kant before. Yeah. What is moral is what is rational. So, like, the right answer is the rational one. And he came to this conclusion because what makes humans is how are rational thinking beings. And I'm not sure how much I totally agree with it because he goes pretty strict with it. Like in this one essay, Kant argues it's wrong to lie even to save an innocent person from murder. Quote, to be truthful in all deliberations is a sacred and absolutely commanding decree of reason limited by no expediency. Expediency. And I sort of related this to what Jordan said because being in the right place at the right time, there was something else Jordan said about uh, rationalism that I can't remember. But in Kant, if what he says is true, maybe when you're doing what is morally and rationally right, 
maybe that's the zone that Jordan was talking about when you're on the the border or not the border when you're balancing chaos and order and finding uh, meaning and fi- yeah finding your meaning so my problem with if you go purely rational which you weren't there you were sort of in that saying intersection yeah, and I, I didn't go into it either i'd only read like the his wiki page and then this one article but where i struggle with rationality as a basis for morality is it's almost like a it's almost devoid of something yeah it's like with moral arguments i don't use examples i know that it can seem that way i don't use examples as traps i use them as like tools yeah as a sort of probing so i'm thinking about rationality and i'm like i don't see how that can explain so many things david humes he wrote a treatise of human nature in it he explains that morality is tied to reasoning which churchland from earlier she uses in her video she kind of alludes reasoning to problem solving it's close enough to rationality that I think it could be close. Uh, Which I think reasoning and rationality are the yeah. same. Yeah. Synonymous at least, right? So this reasoning is probably the process. Right, yeah. But when when he put this out there I forget how long after, but it, it was when he was finally a philosopher and had finished his works and was a thinker at this point. He put out another work called An Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. And in this one, he compares morals. Sorry, he, he says that the foundation of morals, instead of reasoning and rationality, are sentiment. It's, sentimentality yeah. yeah it's it's tied behind your connection with people and so the foundation for morality comes from that connection so would that sort of fill in the gaps that's left by reason is that what he's proposing no so the reason I brought up reasoning and rationality, he says it's not that those aren't the foundation for morality Mm. because he had previously said they were in the treatise. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to specifically state that his previous work was not something that he believed it. I still don't understand what he meant. Attaching sentiment to morality, not entirely. Like I have an idea, but, Right, I feel the same way. It's- yeah, like I, I, I can understand how you make moral choices based off of your connection to people as a whole, but how far can that really go? Right, is what I find myself asking. You know, because like- there's a disconnect between me and a person on the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah there's no sentimentality outside of right. your group. There's no sentiment outside of your group. Right. 
I mean, I mean, there, we do have a, there was one time I read, what was that? It was like humankind changed when we saw the big blue pearl. I can't remember where I heard this, but it's basically the perception of us in the universe and the, the perception of us do you mean as the, human beings, one whole. Do you mean the pale blue dot? What did I say? Big blue, blue pearl. Big blue pearl. That's totally <laughs> what I meant. You said that and I was like. I totally said that with confidence too. I didn't even <laughs> blink. I knew what you meant and had no idea you were wrong. So. <laughs> Here we are. You said you're big, totally right, though. You're, you're, you said the big blue pearl, and I was like, "Yeah." But you're talking about a picture from Voyager One. Am I sent to Earth? Of after Voyager One made it out of our solar system. Oh well, I don't know the specific. Image. Yes and no. I'm I'm just saying, generally speaking, humans have become taught and aware from a young age that it's vast. We are on this island of sorts. Yeah, the people on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean are isolated and they take care of each other. And it's you can't operate any other way. Mm -hmm. You don't have outside sources. You know what I'm saying? And humans improved their previous cooperation. And it may not feel like that today. And we talked a lot about persuasive discourse and how we're sort of always battling it out and things like that. And things feel bad, but the honest truth, I mean, if we get brutally honest, the world has been at war for millennia and war is very limited. Now, very few people have died from war fairly recently. It's a short trend, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. Human cooperation is up. Poverty is disappearing at the most rapid pace ever and it's because of this sort of in my perspective i mean it has there are more factors there are economic factors but like this ability to trade and communicate with each other in a way in a perspective where we understand that we're it and it's not just this little group we fail to break out of that mold sometimes but Overall, compared to what we used to yeah, be, very tribal, it was us against them for most of history. And it's not nearly as prevalent now. Our ability to reason out outward has only gone up as intelligent beings. Once we learned about our size and space and where we are and who we are, when science brought us that far, I think that we were able to cope in a very, I'm saying this in a very general sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that our group sentiment has grown to humankind. That's why you have this move to stop global warming, to save. I don't always particularly agree with it, but I think that their reasoning is a noble one. I don't always agree with implementation. Mm-hmm. But I, I think they have good intention. It's not like people that agree with global warming and want to alter policy are doing it out of malice or or self-interest, right? It, it's because they have a broader sense of 
empathy. Yeah. And their sentimental connection. I'm using that word to relate it back to where we were, but with a global community. And so I think that it, there is something changing whether I believe in moral absolutes or not, which I do, but besides that, regardless of how I feel about that, I'm saying I do think that the global community, there is, has been an alteration in the way we feel. I'm not saying that a moral absolute was altered. That's what I was getting at. There has been a change about the way we feel about each other in the world over time. And so that may, if rationality were to play a part, if rationality and sentiment together played a part where we could reasonably understand our connection. And then that sentiment came into play because of that connection. Then you could apply it on a more global scale rather than just to the, the community, community or yeah. species yeah. or I connect the, um, I don't know what you call it. The sentiment. Yeah. But that whole idea and how it was connected to morality makes me think about like those animal studies, like the one with the monkey and, and the, Oh, the scary the, wire. Yeah, wire mother, mother that gave the sustenance, and then the one that, what was, you know, more comforting, or even the rat one where the big rats wouldn't play with the smaller rats if, or excuse me, the small rats wouldn't play with the, big rats the bigger rats if, if they didn't let them win. The idea I get is that what he said was you get the... Foundation. Yeah, foundation, I guess, for your rationality through people, right? Was that right? Or something like that? Are you talking about what David Hume said? Yeah. No, he said uh, that the foundation for morality is not reason, it is sentimentality. Sentiment. And after that, I was saying I could understand reason and sentiment together. But is it, it wasn't. But that's Hume not that what Hume was saying. Hume didn't connect to the rationality and stuff. He like did it. in the treatise, yeah. but later in his life, he rejected his original oh, okay. idea. Okay. I'm currently leaving my Christian idea, my biblical understanding of this, out of this, while we have this logical conversation, so that I can commit currently to look at it outside of that perspective and I'll come back to that later but I don't see a logical problem or an obvious inadequacy in reasoning and sentiment together but yeah I agree it's just it doesn't seem fulfilling in some way right okay I'm not saying it's complete but I don't see a logical error there. Yeah. Well, I don't either. And that's what I feel like with uh, those studies. Oh, and there was this other study done on premature babies where they're taken from the womb prematurely. And they 
I forget exactly how it improved, but they had found that if you like gently massage the babies for for 10 minutes, I think it was every day or so they three, uh, three times a day, I think three times, however often. But right? yeah, 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 they come out. I think on average, it was like three to five days earlier and like the beneficial effects of doing so are, are seen still way down the line throughout their infancy. All these experiments uh, and studies point to the same thing to me uh, in, well, point to a few different things, depending on how you want to understand it. But in this case, it's that caring, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but caring. Nurture. Yeah, caring for other individuals of, of in your, well, species or circle is just entirely beneficial. And not only in kinship, like with the monkey and the the baby case, but also in, in social settings, like with the rats. I was going to say not only beneficial, but needed. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. That is a better way to put that. I think, yeah, it is needed. But the only logical problem that I run into is that just because things can be explained that way doesn't mean they operate under an absolute law. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. we talked about this a yeah. little while ago, and I just I don't know how to reconcile that fact. If we are committing to an absolute in our worldview, that's a, an extreme statement. And you have to be willing to accept that it's an extreme statement because an absolute is not in the world of logic and reason taken whimsically. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's set in stone. Yeah. And it's, you know, we have in science a lot of law, theory, hypothesis. You know what I mean? It's There are a lot of different levels of of trying to understand something. And when you get to an absolute law, you're, <laughs> you're, yeah. the, you're at the finish line. This yeah. is where you're saying right, we got right. it. We got it. And there's no... We can predict with this law what will happen. Now, that's empirically. I'm not, this isn't morally. Yeah. But I'm just well, saying there's a. Even with an absolute morality, it doesn't automatically come with the assumption that everyone knows and abides by it. And that also just wrenches up the thoughts even more, you know. Well, it complicates it. Yeah, because you don't have to operate by yeah. it. Yeah. So it just makes it that much harder to. Because in the end, you're saying this is good, this is evil, or bad. Yeah, it's like, here is the moral, I still have free will. But you could do exactly. what you want yeah, with it. Yeah. So there's no way to, like, in the real physical world, sort of test that theory. It's it's not practical or, or useful answer to the question. But I, I felt like bringing it up. That there is, you might understand, but... There is an absolute truth, whether there is or isn't. Because if there isn't one, then that's a truth. And if there is one. Yeah, so, David tackled this last week. Yeah. Oh, well, did you? I, I didn't tackle it in the way that I should have. Oh, I right, used, right, right. I should have used better words. But if there is an, an absolute moral truth, that is a absolute truth, not an absolute moral truth. You don't think so? I guess so. So an absolute moral truth would be what is right and what is wrong, but there not being an absolute truth would be an absolute empirical truth. Okay. Not yeah, an okay. absolute moral that is, truth. That yeah. is literally a truth. 
not a, a yeah, moral yeah, yeah, truth. It doesn't mean that truth doesn't right. exist wholly. Yeah. As a whole. It took me a while to even... I must have missed it while I was trying to understand everything else. But it, I didn't come to that realization, I guess, until just a couple of days ago. And I was like, what a totally unfulfilling... Because when you the two words you think about are absolute truth and not absolute truth, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And while, I think it's a self-defeating statement if you're in the argument for an overall absolute. Yeah, truth. yeah, I think so. If you're saying, does absolute truth exist? And if you say no, well, then we say, you just gave me an absolute truth. <laughs> that would be a legitimate argument. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if we're stuck in the moral realm, then... Yeah, definitely. It's not as equal. Yeah. You know, so part of the struggles that I have with moral absolutes, I have problems with subjective. I almost said subjective absolutes, uh, subjective morality, subjective truths is pretty obvious. It's the. It's it's not being able to nail it down. It's not there being no standard there being. No guideposts, no nothing. And at least, I guess, in your theory, there is something, some kind of backbone. Now, I I still disagree with it, but like at least I can feel like there is a logical arch to it. But my disagreement with subjective truths is much broader because of the lack of limitation. And, but it doesn't get completely resolved with, in, in my understanding with your perspective, because I don't see applicability in the way that being forthright more than just the Bible, although that's the one I believe religious texts tend to give you, right? They give you concrete things. And even if religious texts don't give you a concrete answer for specific moral situations, they at least give you a broader operating range. Is that making sense? It's like you may have moral gray area, Mm -hmm. but you have guide. Even if you don't have a straightforward answer all the time like murder you know what i'm saying outside of that when you have right but you you, situational things most religions have a code giver that has a thing of a book of religious texts or examples parables and things like that that you can draw conclusions to you can draw from yeah yeah and that's what i was getting at It, it when you you don't have material to draw from for your set doesn't make it false right i don't see a, a fallacy there but i just struggle with implementation that's what i was getting at is let's say your worldview is true i how do you teach it like you you can pass on religion Again, none of this makes it true, but right, right. I'm just trying to understand how it functions because we have to move forward in the world and we have to move forward in every 
subsequent generation. And we have to be able to articulate this to the people that come before. I guess I'm hyper aware of this maybe because I have children. I don't know. I'm just like, I can't, I don't know how to teach this and I don't know how to apply it. When you come, people take their moral proclivities into public policy and they take it into the school and they, it's, it's part of our culture. It's part of our society. It's part of the world. And the way people have worked out how to pass that on is through religion. And whether you believe that is because religion is true or whether you believe that humans developed religion as a method of doing that is besides the point. That's the vehicle right, that right. we use. And up until our modern secular society, that's been how it's done. Now, the modern, there was one interview that Jordan Peterson did with, uh, I don't remember who it was with, but he was talking about, there was a talk with Jordan Peterson, and he was referencing how you can't just throw out religion. And the reason is, and he's a logical thinker, he doesn't, he hasn't even really voiced necessarily whether he believes truthfully in the existence of God or a God. But one of his problems he voices against Sam Harris, who is an atheist. Jordan is more of just along the lines of saying, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah, right. I, but I'm not ready to say no. And he, he references yeah. the Bible and Jesus a lot, too. Well, he looks at them. <clears throat> this is a little bit off topic, but he, he looks at them as there's a reason they've survived this long. And they are meta stories. They are. Right. On the human, yeah, they, almost. yeah, they were written not just like for religious or historical purposes. Like they contain the story of humans, mm -hmm. of humanity. Anyway, he references Sam Harris's perspective that you just get rid of. You can assume that humans have this proclivity to be ethical they've developed this right and that you can attribute it to science and that if you examine human development even if you want to look at it from a moral development as a sort of evolutionary perspective like we developed this complex set of moral standards over time if you want to look at it that way which sam harris does well, I don't know if I would say Sam Harris does, because I, I heard him talk about absolute truths. Anyway, if you were to eliminate the underpinning structures that developed it, is that fair? Right? You can't look and say this entire developed world, which mostly developed by religion. Right. Can you just pull that right out from underneath and say all of that current stuff would still be here if religion had never been here? Mm. That's not a very fair or logical perspective. Right. For most of human history, everyone was religious in some manner. And so to ignore that maybe religion could be a key and to just say we can get rid of religion and still have all of these ethics that we've developed, he said, that's not, 
It's not logical. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't. If you if you look at the history of the world and see how many countries developed or prospered because of religion and say like the Renaissance or when the Greeks and Romans had their philosophers come out and stand because of religion. You can't say that these things didn't come because of this. Right. Right. And say that they'll they'll still stand even after these things are gone. Because it's never it's never been tried. No And it can't be you can't do a dry run of humanity without religion. It's already been done. Like <laughs> Yeah, it's only yeah. it's always hypothetical right. if you go back and say, well, if religion didn't exist, well, you don't know because it did before and it re- does before like, religion existed. We weren't humans. Yeah, it's not. And I mean, yeah, even even not, then religion, not in a conscious way, at least. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, religion has been there the whole way, like even the earliest humans, they're ways of interpreting the world were and the ways scientifically right? the ways that humans experience religion isn't even well understood yeah it's not pulling that idea out is not you can't act like you know what that means anyway my point saying that is just being intellectually honest and saying religion is and has been inseparable inseparable from the human experience until recently as secularism developed and people stepped outside of religion and started finding their own path. We don't know what that means. This is relatively new. And so speaking to that is difficult. It's hypothetical. Secondly, I guess thirdly, my first point was I don't feel like that there are answers outside of an absolute truth that is more concrete and that brings agreement between people. So when you have not total agreement, obviously you have different religions, you have non-religious people, but I, I would say generally speaking in a very broad sense it can bring people onto the same page or at least close because there are more things literally on paper you know what i'm saying that's a logical argument not one that holds any weight because that doesn't prove anything it it was just a, a benefit maybe Um, But it doesn't make it any more true. And also, morality doesn't really mean anything if we can't use it. Does that make sense? It may be true. There may be maybe what you're saying is true. Right. If everyone ignores it, then. It could exist. But like. If it isn't functional. What good is it to have a moral truth and be right if no one else in the world believes it? Again, that doesn't make it truer for me to believe something. That doesn't make it truer. If it can't be understood and passed on effectively, and it can't be used, what good is it as a... And then it would effectively actually die. Yeah. 
But not as a moral truth. Well, not yeah, okay. Not as a moral truth. But it would be a truth that would become- I don't know what you would call it, maybe a truth in exile. Like but see that's how moral truth that's how moral truth exists. Always. Cause someone somewhere right. is always ignoring it. Somebody. That's a good point, yeah. In Christianity, we believe there's a price for that. But I don't know, outside of that secular worldview, I think the price would probably be more what would you say literal? Like it would be empirical. It would show up. Yeah. As a result. Cause the thing is, I guess an absolute moral truth is like, if you obey this for nature, this is what, reason, yeah, this is what you're causing. Yeah. By ignoring then it. this is going to be the result. And that's the truth. If you, if you act this way, we call that immoral. It's just a label. But if you act this way, this is what will happen. If you act this way, this is what will right. happen. If you act differently, this is what can happen for you. So those are, I guess, sort of what you're talking about. And they're, But those are truths governing behavior and result according to nature. And you're, I mean, I guess I would believe that too as a Christian. I think that the consequences if, will show up. Right. If morals are not well. followed, then. But I mean, it, some, I guess in a sense of justice that morals are, are dealt with spiritually in those that escape the consequence mortally. My argument for the benefit of religious guidance in religious moral truth. And of course I believe that's absolute in my personal, you know, personal belief system. And I believe that absolute comes from God, but I don't, it's complicated because, you know, your belief in a God in God is predicated on so much more than, of course, just his authority, mm-hmm. like just the sole basis of his moral authority, right? It's all this, all these other things. And so when you accept him or the scripture based on all the other things, the authority is what comes as a result. Do you see what I'm saying? Because of all he's done. Right. When you build a, a foundation for your Christian belief and you undergird it with faith in things that you don't know or don't understand or his transformative power in your life or seen the results of the impact of scripture. Like there are, I, I could just keep going, but like my point is, and of course I don't feel complete in it, but I, I do appreciate the whole of scripture and have looked at it for a while and have given my confidence to the scripture as a whole, right? As I work out the rest of it spiritually and intellectually and go through that process, as you do that, you accept the authority a moral authority. Does that make sense? I don't, I didn't start with that. You didn't. So I can't defend it by saying, right. 
You didn't put him there. He ended up there because of these things that you believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also, when, you know, when we're talking about things on a personal level and we're part of candor encounter is to re-examine how you believe. And so naturally you would think I would go and reevaluate my view about the moral absolute authority of God. That's a way too simple look at the way that I look at God, because I don't just view him as that. You view him as a savior. You view him as the ultimate sacrifice and omnipotent power. And like there, so I can't just punch out the one absolute moral authority. First of all, that's a cornerstone. So like the whole thing (laughs) would come crumbling down and I'm recognizing that it's not like, that's not an argument for it. Right. It's just an explanation as to um, why I wouldn't turn on a dime because of, yeah. of this discussion here. No, you- it doesn't mean that I don't listen to or try to understand your arguments or even question my own understandings or beliefs. I do. But my belief in his ultimate absolute moral authority doesn't come from my intellectual understanding of his moral absolute authority. It comes from the rest of his being the ultimate creator and him, like all of those are foundational to him and my faith in him. And so it's not, I don't know if that's coming across, but I don't know if what I'm trying to say is coming across, but. It's not just an intellectual idea that I'm challenging. Right. It is. And that goes for most of the things that I believe and, and most religious people do Christian people do is you have an entire foundational system and those systems rely on each other and build each other. And so if I were, I consider myself intellectually honest here and I'm not deconstructing my faith. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but like there are Christians that like leave the church and then they deconstruct their faith. They, they go through it almost like we are and they just tear it apart. Okay. And sometimes intellectual pursuits, because a lot of Christians can go into the intellectual pursuits without a spiritual healthiness. Mm -hmm. And that will, it is inevitable without a relationship, a personal relationship with God. You will straight. Yeah. You'll be off the path because it's a purely intellectual pursuit. So I don't want that to sound like a cop out. I just want it to be explained that, you know, I, I will never. Yeah. You're keeping your spirituality close still. Yeah. I will never abandon the idea of God or God himself solely for one fact. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Right. I may not understand it, but it's almost like a default position. So if you have like, I'm trying to explain this in a way that's not too roundabout, but 
if you have like a default position and your default position is, I don't know, like a lot of, which I like my default position to be that way, especially in, in reason and logical arguments. Because that's the healthiest way to approach. I mean, yeah, if you approach something as I don't know, then you, you accept that there is a lot to learn. And that yeah. this person might have the information. So my default position, just being forthright, is in, in moral and spiritual matters, is Christianity as God. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can explain it. It's the moral and spiritual equivalent of I don't know in the spiritual and moral right. realm. This thing that I'm learning, can I align it? With what I believe. And I actively work to do that right. in a in a a way of reasoning, a way of application in my life, and a way of relationship with him. Like all of that works together for the same and I try to make them agree. I mean not make them agree. That sounds forceful. Like see, I I try to see if they agree and where they don't. It's that continuity of thought though, right? Yeah, I mean in internal disagreement with me is like, uh, we've said this before, and most of us feel this way, I think, now. It's sort of a way of self-regulation. And right. you know when your ideas disagree, they can't coexist. So you have to figure out where that is. And But but it's like a, an X on the map, though. It tells you, or a doctor's diagnosis, like a symptom showing up. It tells you where to go and what you need to where you need to work on something. Well, that's with a lot of things for me. I did see a lot of growth with this, but it, I'm still a little inconclusive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going forward with this one because it's been already a little eye-opening, I think. Yeah, because last week I was leaning pretty hard into their, into it being subjective, morality being subjective. But I really don't believe that's the case anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't, but do you believe that's results based? That's why you don't believe that or that's why you're leading away from it. Results based a little bit evidence based like what you're seeing or is it just through reasoning as in causality? I would say it's the reasoning because there's too many there's too many trends I see, I see among all the so many different ways that we covered already. That, That's what I meant by evidence-based. Right. In those, like you said, the trends or whatever. And it was easier for me to understand morality if it was subjective. It's harder to grasp at the truth. Because I still don't really know what it would be, but I do feel like there is one. Yeah, I mean, you guys said it last last episode. It's sort of the clean answer is the simplest answer is subjective. It's only the simplest answer if you look at the world through your own eyes. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as you look at the global view, as soon as you zoom out and try to understand society as a whole it creates these problems 
I, w- I wish I could come out saying that I had found a moral truth, which I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, we also said last week. Yeah, it's impossible to prove. Even if you That's felt true. like you had had a moral yeah. truth or <clears throat> identified an absolute moral truth. Take me, for example, who subscribes to a more concrete idea of what the absolute moral truth yeah. is. It's still faith. It's just like the example of any other scientific hypothesis that can't be witnessed. Yeah. Like the Big Bang or right. evolution or whatever you want to call it. Like there may be evidences, but you're still going to have to say this evidence is strong enough for me. For you to place to, your belief in it. Right. Yeah. Because that's what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Because there's no 100% proof. That's hard to come by. Yeah. So definitely for abstract ideas, I don't know if I would say abstract ideas, but definitely for um, beliefs like morals, that's going to be the case. Yeah. Even, you know, especially if it's the case for even more hardcore, solid things uh so david what how are you feeling about your your theory from last week i still think it's apt and it fills the gaps in where i want to be able to fill in for like the source of a moral code what you brought up earlier about it being able to be taught or used effectively to help people that's something i really want to you know dig into my head and mentally and like you know is is there a way i ran into this struggle while listening to jordan peterson you know jordan peterson has this way of deconstructing christianity not in a destructive way but in a, what do they call that when they analyze uh, mythology? And it's a, it's like a literary analysis, I guess. I know, okay. Yeah. So he studies the the mythology and the meaning of humanity in the Bible, and the not prototypical, but there's a term, a specific term that I'm looking for here. He takes the Bible and he takes the human elements of it about the hero's journey and the ability to sacrifice and how we were using that to build these stories, to teach each other these things. Mm -hmm. And they were put in there for those reasons, right? That's his, maybe not directly for those reasons as in the person putting them there was for that, but how they were cultivated, these stories were cultivated over time for that. That's how he views this. Now, obviously, that differs from my view of Scripture. But I also am thankful for that analytical ability. Because in my belief, it can be both at the same time. It can be God giving us the ability to form the human story within his Bible. Mm. Right? Within his word and his Scripture. 
So passing on a moral code at the same time describing the human experience, they're not exclusive of each other. Anyway, my original feeling coming away from Jordan Peterson as a Christian was I like what he's doing in trying to understand these literary characters as he views them and their archetypes. That's the word I was looking for earlier. The archetypes of the books of the Bible and and the different types of stories they lend themselves to. If you're going that route, if you're not thinking about it carefully, you can turn the Bible into just a story Mm. if you're a Christian. And I had this thought because he doesn't, he's not, for lack of a better word, uh, a born again Christian. He's not, he doesn't subscribe to all the beliefs that I do about the Bible and the inerrancy of it and God's word and all of that thing. He, he thinks there might be a God, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a hard defined belief. And I respect that, but One of the concerns, and this is coming back around to David's point, one of the concerns going that route when I was listening to him was a thought that has been in my head over and over is, okay, Jordan, so if we're dispensing with the forgiveness of sin, because if we're looking at the book from a like a literary perspective, right? If we're not looking at it as a yeah. a real event, then you're dispensing with the actual forgiveness of sin. Like you're dispensing with the actual reality of it. And that's fine if that's your perspective, but the reason religion was successful at passing this along is because people believed it. Okay. So once you deconstruct it, And you say, these are invaluable tools that we've passed down through generations. That's what he says. These are important human experiences. The hero's journey, the redemption of the father, the the prodigal son, like all of these archetypes that are, are, are guideposts for us in the future. The reason they work is because they're in the form of a religion. And... When you take away that form and you deconstruct them into their individual parts and you say, this is how it works. Right. This is, these are the things we believed for thousands of years and passed them along and they were very beneficial to us. Okay. Now that you've done that and you're left with this basket full of random archetypes and stories and useful things for humans. How do you yeah, pass that on no, to your children? How do you carry that over? I wish I would hear one day somebody ask him, what is the cost? What do you think the possible cost is? Not the guaranteed cost, mm-hmm. because yeah, it's yeah. still projecting. Yeah, yeah. It's a guess. What do you think the cost is of dispensing with the structure of Christianity for its components? I think that the, the problem lies just as much in the structure as it does in the content. I can teach religion because it's a story too. I'm not denying that. There is an, a coherent narrative to it. Where when you're teaching morals, it's like there are some that are easy to teach 
like you shouldn't hurt other people, but there are what is personal to me, you know, that I believe are absolute that are by my reasoning, absolute due to scripture that maybe other people in the world who don't believe that wouldn't adhere to You can't necessarily pass along without. And I don't feel like that's what I mean by content as well as structure. There are morals out there that you probably believe and teaching someone else to follow them may be easy enough, but telling them why may be harder if you don't have a supporting structure for it. There may be some benefit according to your system for some moral, but explaining that reasoning to someone may be more difficult. I don't see the, the difference in ease between the two types of information. It may be yeah. because I'm tired, but it may I, be because the way my mind works, because I, I consume information mm-hmm. so erratically. Which I consume information that way as well, but I also consume it orderly, like through the Bible or teaching. But So I definitely don't believe that it's the only way to learn things. But that's not really how I consume my moral basis. Like, as far as I could tell. I may be wrong about that, but... Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, my moral structure... Of course, some of it comes from things that were impressed upon me. Yeah, experience. Yeah as far as what dictates some of my actions, but my belief, my adult formed belief, I believe comes from an ordered Yeah, an ordered pre-written and studied structure. Yeah, structure. I was trying not to overuse the word, but oh, yeah. we're, we're limited here. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that doesn't mean that's the only way. I'm just saying where we can, we do consume it differently, but not, I don't do it exclusively either. Not that's an indicator of either one of the systems, how we no, consume yeah. information, but so you feel like there's just more to unpack still on Def- your end. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Sean as well, but you're you're leaning a little more toward that there's some absolute yeah yeah moral truth out there. Yeah, I don't know if I would say this as a moral truth, but I think it speaks to it a little bit. One of the conclusions I've come to is people need people and. Engendering relationships and being kind to people makes you, uh, I don't know. I know that relationships and care are really important, but I don't know how that plays into moral truths. But for me, I feel like that has something to do with it. 
it, it's like it seems like it's universal like it can't ever be a bad thing is that what you're saying it would never be immoral to right yeah someone. that's what i mean which seems like an absolute right yeah i get it and it's it's leading you down a, a new path a bit of one yeah definitely well me i think i would say I did examine where I think other moral truths could come from outside of, I tried to put my faith aside and examine this stuff from a human perspective, a, a scientific perspective, a logical perspective outside of that. And, um, I didn't find a lot, a lot of major problems other than when, other than with, subjective perspectives you know subjective moral truths i i just can't seem to cross that line i don't i'm sort of like you just said a minute ago i even if i ignore scripture or faith or whatever <clears throat> i i can't seem to get away that there's going to be things that are and always have been morally true. I haven't seen anything that convinces me otherwise, really. I can understand why subjective truth seems appealing. Simple and superficially might seem beneficial, even, especially for people who really find I was going to say diversity that's the wrong word but like individuality mm -hmm. important yeah I can see the appeal and and the connection yeah it, those it ideas. almost like like begs that conclusion yeah almost but it's not yeah if you really look at it I don't see a direct right. connection because you don't take someone's freedom away necessarily you can i guess if your ideas of freedom are i get to do whatever i want but that's not our modern idea of freedom anyway i feel like i haven't changed a whole lot but i don't feel like i abandoned my responsibility to try and and i'm like you guys i don't and a lot of the topics especially these longer ones you don't ever come away feeling like you finished. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. made it guys. Yeah. It just doesn't ever. That's, that's, that's true. That's a really good point. <laughs> it always yeah. ends up. There's more somewhere. Yeah. That I can know. All right. Yeah. We're burning out. If you have a topic idea you'd want to submit that you think would be good for us, you can go to candorencounter.com slash submit, fill out the form there. We would love any submission you can go to facebook at counter encounter podcast we submit all our episodes there and you can find links to all of our sources that we use to view the content that we based uh, a lot of our findings on yeah you can interact with our podcast there all of us post on there and share on there and Every new episode that comes out is on there. Every new topic that comes out is on there. It's just right now it's where we're at. So if you are listening on an Apple device, you can uh, leave us a rate or review there. It really help our podcast. 
And if you're on our website at the top, you can find the Podchaser link. It does the same thing there. And if you would, if you come over to Facebook, just let us know you're there. Like our post, share our page. It really helps us out. And as we um, get ready to wrap up and shut this thing down, we just want to thank you guys, us as three brothers, when we just sit around the room and talk about these topics that you guys send into us. It really, it does something for us. And we're burned out. We're wore out right now. Not burned out, like tired of this, but like just physically exhausted. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't. Yeah, burned out isn't the most accurate. Yeah, thing. it's a little we put misleading. A, we put a lot into it and got a lot of it. Yeah. We're happy with it. We make this harder on us. It's not you guys <laughs> sending us topics. Actually, it's the opposite. This feeds us in a way, and we really like doing it. And just like Sean said, if you could go to candorencounter.com slash submit and send us new topics, it gives us more late-night fodder. It gives us another thing to talk about, another thing, another reason to to, to waste time with each other yeah, and to convene. pick each other's brains and to talk each other until we pass out. So we're out of here, you guys, and we love you as a human being. We hope to see you again. So until next time, take it easy.